Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Uh, pretty close. You don't remember this chapter at all, do I'm you? I'm reminding myself it's been a while since I did the sentences. Okay. Now be very quiet as we observe the podcast host in his natural habitat. And welcome to Chronically Narnia, the podcast in which my co-host and I discuss the Chronicles of Narnia chapter by chapter. And today we are discussing chapter nine of The Last Battle. This chapter is called The Great Meeting on Stable Hill. I am Poggin the Dwarf, whose name is so oft forgotten, both by the hosts and the um, characters of the book. Also known as Kristen, and this is my co-host. I'm an outlaw living in the western wastes. Also known as Chris. You've been playing too much Red Dead Redemption. <laughs> now that's my D&D character voice, thank you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, Chris, how are it's you? A, it's, a, it's a voice of fossil loam. We've taken like a month off, haven't we? <laughs> well, um... We, we we got the vid. Yeah. The apostrophe vid. Yep. We succumbed to it. Um, we did. Oh, how succumbed. the mighty have fallen. Uh, and, that Omicron. And and thankfully we are vaccinated and it was a very mild case. Yes. Well, uh, it was annoying, but. Yeah. So, hooray. We defeated, we defeated with great rejoicing. Yeah. <laughs> so, we did that. Um, and then holidays and stuff and like, well, holidays came first. Yeah. We would have been back on track if we hadn't been sick, <laughs> Very. but true. we couldn't very well record <laughs> or I couldn't tolerate to edit yeah. the coughing and the sniffling <laughs> would have been a lot. Yeah. We also took five days off for MLK day. That's like a big deal for us. <laughs> Inadvertently because of <laughs> Anyway, so... <laughs> cool, we're back. We're back, and we are discussing the Great Meeting on Stable Hill, which Chris prepared for, like, three weeks ago yeah, when I've we were a... supposed to record, so he might not remember much of this. As long as I can keep reading my writing, I'm fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're more than halfway through. I just really... If you've listened to the podcast for any amount of time, you know that that takes quite a lot of effort. Yeah, I'm... I'm really, really, really excited about moving on to Percy Jackson. Yeah. Like, I really want to finish this series, so I've, I've been pushing for us to do it more frequently, but things have conspired against us. Yeah, it's been true. So, but rest assured, we're going to finish this soon. Um, theoretically, we only have another couple months. Yep. In if, if that. So, hooray. If we How can we... get back on the on the weekly schedule, it'll be just about, what, seven weeks? Something like that. Depending on how many wrap-up episodes we end up doing. Yeah. And guest scheduling. It does depend on that. Uh, whether our seance to bring back C.S. Lewis is successful or not, we really, <laughs> really want his take on this. Uh, That's yeah. our Patreon episode. Yeah, absolutely. It's just going to be C.S. Lewis, like, knocking on things. <laughs> is Jewel actually a symbol for uh, the, the medi- medieval monarchy of, of England and... 
how the I had nowhere to go with that. All right. Anyway, oh, is this is this? I'm sorry. Are you are you phrasing questions for C.S. Lewis's spirit? Yes. Oh, okay. Um, has to be yes or no. Yeah. So we can knock once for yes and twice for no. I see. Um. Anyway, well, how do we start this podcast? What do we do? Uh, we do our summaries. Okay. So we as you and I. I well, yeah, duh. Um, as you and I read through the chapters, we select five sentences to summarize the chapter. Uh-huh. And in doing so, uh, you know, just read some words from the chapter. Cool. Sporadically in order to summarize. Would you like to go first? Sure, I'll go first so All I don't right. have to read my... Um, <laughs> Your rewrite? My first. rewrite first later, which All is right. interesting. You got it. Um, here's my summary. Nothing now remains for a seven but to go back to Stable Hill, proclaim the truth, and take the adventure that Aslan sends us. They had been feeling very brave when they were begging to be allowed to come with the others, but now they didn't feel brave at all. For really, as it happened, the whole thing was rather like a theater. At this very moment, when the terrible one himself is among us, there in the stable just behind me, One wicked beast has chosen to do what you'd think no one would dare to do, even if he were a thousand miles away. And then she understood the devilish cunning of the enemy's plan. Oh, ho, ho, ho. There you go. I almost used that one about the wicked, uh, the terrible beast. Mm -hmm. Um, But I decided not to. Here's my summary. Cool. We do have the same first sentence. Nothing now remains for us seven but to go back to Stable Hill, proclaim the truth, and take the adventure that Aslan sends us. But the dwarf told them that if they arrived there by daylight, they would probably find the place deserted except for a calamine sentry. They left Puzzle, not without a kind word, for no one was angry with him now, just behind it, telling him not to move till someone came to fetch him and took up their positions at one end of the stable. Tashlan, I mean, of course, said the ape, is very angry about it. Jill looked at the king. His mouth was open and his face was full of horror. Whoa. Whoa. Cool. Um, so the entire point of this chapter is essentially one conversation scene that happens at the very end of it and that's basically all that happens yeah it's Um, again it's a pretty short chapter with some like dense content yeah there's some that's kind of there's there's some there's some character development there's something about the cosmology uh of narnia itself that i really want to get into um but let's let's go through it shall we sure so remember remembering how we do this podcast yeah so we start this chapter right where the previous one left off with them finding out the terrible news that Care Paravel has fallen. Mm-hmm. And that not only has Care Paravel fallen, but so has the army that was riding out from Care Paravel to come to their aid. Yeah. So this little crew of people is now all that is faithful and true and worthy in all of Narnia. Yep. Is kind of what it feels like. I guess we're kind of screwed, guys. Yep, a little bit. Um, and so we start this out by saying the seven us have nothing left to do except to go to uh, Stable Hill. Oh, but wait, um, two of you, two of us shouldn't go. Yeah, Tyrion <laughs> is basically saying, "Hey, Eustace and Jill, you guys need to go back." Yeah. After um, he says, 
The seven of us have nothing left to do but to go back to Stable Hill. Oh, wait, no, you two can't come. Yeah, it's too dangerous. Like, you've done your part. You've freed me. Like, you know. Go back to your world. I and a dwarf and a unicorn can save the entire country. It's totally fine. And the eagle. Yeah, of course. Can't forget the eagle. And um, and, and the ass. Well, nobody likes puzzles still. Um, well, they do by least. the end. They're nice <laughs> to them. Um... So, yeah, he, he's like, yep, you've done your part. You freed me. Um, you, uh, Eustace, you killed a guy. Cool. Good job. Go back and tell your friends about it. Yeah. Um, Jill, you... Well, because they say we haven't done anything. And so then we have Tyrion have to, like, sit there and tell them all the good that they have done. No, you, Jill, went before me like a wraith in the night through the trees and guided us and went and called, got Puzzle. And Eustace, you killed your man. Like... Like, that's something really important to hold on to for the rest of your life. Yeah. Don't forget it. Um, and then Eustace brings up the very good point of how are they supposed to get back in the first place? Yeah. They don't Not have... Like... They have never had any control over coming and going from Narnia. Yeah. I mean, that said, though, Eustace and Jill are the only ones who said, Hey, Aslan, we'd like to go to Narnia and got whisked away to Narnia. So yeah. they're the closest anyone has come to choosing that yeah and uh Tyrion is just like oh yeah that's right <laughs> guess that makes sense huh didn't think of that one well then you should just go away no yeah. we're going with you Jill basically like begs him to let them stay and gets all emotional and there's this really interesting moment of her emotional appeals being met by Eustace's logic well we can't go home anyway uh-huh <laughs> Like, and she got frustrated with him for being so logical. Yeah. It's that, uh, that inner nerd of his coming out one more time. Yep. All his book learning. Yep. That we haven't brought up in this book at all. We haven't. Subtle reference. Yep. Um, so they realize they can't go back. So, again, we have this conversation, which has been happening for, I feel like, three chapters now, where the king is just like, well, we need to go back to Stable Hill. Like, they've been talking about this for a long time as to what to do. Because now that they know all the defenders at Care Paravel are dead. Just well, like, they well, found that out at the very end of the last chapter. Yeah. So it's not, that part hasn't been happening for yeah. a long time. But what they're supposed to be doing now has yeah. been happening since the dwarves ran away from them in the woods. And we're like, nope, peace. Yeah. We're going to come back to them later. And he's just like, all right, well, I guess we should go back. We have another horse. We have nobody coming. So let's go back and show off the donkey and... Try, See what happens. Try really hard to beat those 30 calories. Yeah. So. Before we get overrun with the army coming from Care Paravel. Yeah. So they're supposed to go at night because if they go in the daytime, nobody's going to be there. They briefly discuss waiting till night to try to sneak there. And then Poggin corrects them and says, no, 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 no. At night is when they have the meetings, which means everyone stays away unless they've been summoned. So going during the day is the best option because you might only come across one sentry. Yeah. Um, so they set off and uh, they... And they all get sad <laughs> and mopey and the king is like leaning his head all up on uh, Jewel and being all sad and... The kids are having a whole moment of being like, and the, and the kids have a really serious conversation here, which is, if we die in Narnia, what happens to us in England? Yeah, that's what I wanted to get to, um, which I thought was interesting, because I feel like this is the first time we really question 
the the metaphysical reality of what's happening in Narnia. Yeah. Because I feel like uh, before we've always assumed, oh hey, it is just aim at it is just another world. The kids disappear. They go there. It's just hey, they go through a wormhole or like the the web between worlds or whatever, yeah. and they go from our world into Narnia, which we see in a very literal way in uh, um, the first one. Yeah. The magician's nephew. They're just like, all right, we're going to zoom out and we see, you know, the or, or we coming back to England and we see Jupiter and the planets and we're yeah. zooming in and we see London and then we're back in the house. Um, Super zoom. Yeah. But in this one, they're having this question about like, are there physical bodies actually present in Narnia? Yeah. Because there's a... Like, Which, I mean, yes. Sorry, continue. And, and and it's like, oh, hey, if we die in the Matrix, do we die in real life type situation? Yeah. Which I think there is an issue with the Magician's Nephew versus all the other episodes of, of uh, Traveling in Narnia. Uh-huh. So with all, all of the transitions out of Narnia, it has been like an instantaneous return. Uh-huh. So... At no point, you know, like, re- you could sit there and argue their bodies never left Earth. Uh-huh. But that they were also fully in Narnia. Like, that they were they were not even gone for a second. They returned to the instant they left. Yeah, they were astral projecting this entire time. No, no, no. I'm saying they disappeared from here, uh-huh. went to Narnia, were physically present in Narnia, and appeared back here at the instant they left. Yeah. Like, that, that they were fully in Narnia. But that they also never left here because they were, so, like, instantaneously returned to the exact second they left. Yeah. If that makes sense. In all of the books, except for Magician's Nephew. Magician's Nephew all of a sudden goes, yeah, here's this transitional passage that happens. Mm-hmm. And that happens differently in the Magician's Nephew because their means of transport is done via the rings rather than via Aslan. Uh-huh. And so I think that there's a distinct difference happening there. Now, the question of whether or not their bodies would just never return or would their dead bodies return uh-huh. if they died? Like, in Narnia, are would they, if they die in Narnia, would they just disappear? Have you been assuming this whole time that their bodies never left Earth and that they were just mentally in Narnia this whole time? Well, I, I, I feel like, I mean, that's what I got from this conversation, Um I mean, the the imagery of them being on the train, and then they zip off to Narnia, and then whoever else is on the train just sees these two kids sitting there suddenly drop dead. Yeah. yeah. Well, and that's and that's what the kids are saying. Like, are they going to never find our bodies? Are they never going to find us? Or have we just vanished from England completely? Or are our bodies just going to be dead in England if we die here? Yeah. So... It'll be rum for Peter and all the others if they come on, if they saw me waving out the window of the train. What does that mean? Yeah. It was like, I mean, we've established that, like, they still remember the time that has passed in Narnia. Like, Peter and all the others, like, going back to Earth had all the memories of, like, the 20 years or whatever they spent as rulers in Narnia. Mm -hmm. And they had all that and they had mentally matured to that extent uh, somehow, even though the memories tend to fade and don't really come back until they're back in the Narnian air. Mm-hmm. But physically, 
like we've never really addressed the question of like if you got grievously injured and like lost a hand in Narnia, do you come back to Earth and not have a hand anymore? Yeah. Like, or do you or is there have weird some time scarring nonsense? or whatever? Yeah. yeah. We also have like a brief reference here to like. I'd rather Eustace. I think it's Eustace says something like, "I'd rather die here than at the hands of Great British Railways." <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. he says something along those lines. Like, there was a jerk on the train right before we came here, and I thought we were gonna die in a train accident. Yeah, and then and then Jill says, "I I I would rather die here now than." I'd rather be killed fighting for Narnia than grow old and stupid at home and perhaps go about in a bath chair and then die in the end just the same. So, yeah, that's that's how that nine year old thinks about the world. I mean, that that uh, seems very in line with how a kid would think about getting old. Mm. It's like it's, you know, as as a child, like the idea of getting old is like a, you know, basically incomprehensible concept to you. Yeah. Um. I wish it still was. Um, <laughs> but I don't know. I mean, this is like not the first subtle jab that Lewis has made about the British railway system. And it makes me want to talk to like an English baby boomer just to be like in the in the 50s in English, was it a common thing that the trains just sucked and everybody was just like, well, in English, British, British, in England. Yeah, yeah. that's what I said. And, and everybody's just like, well, British railways are going to kill us all because it's a terrible service. Like... <laughs> It, it, it is a thing that Lewis has referenced a few times before. Yeah. About the trains or something going wrong with them or like the well, the, the, burnt, I, the burnt earth you see next to train yes, tracks. Yes, yes. Well, I imagine that part of that does have to do with the war and a lot of the infrastructure getting damaged or destroyed or taken over by military and things like that. And that railways were very much a different animal right after the war and in the recovery process from the war than... Yeah. They were before and now, like. Yeah. But, yeah, anyway, the railway thing. We did skip over something um, that I would like to go back to, but we can finish talking about trains and this whole uh, existential crisis of whether or not their bodies just drop dead on Earth. Uh, No, you can go back. Okay. When Tyrion tells them that they can't go into battle, Uh the argument that he makes is not, you know... Because battles are terrible places when women fight, uh-huh. um, but that they're young. And I appreciated that um, there was some amount of maturing on C.S. Lewis's part in his view about this particular argument that he shouldn't be arguing that Jill shouldn't go fight. Possibly. Um, but that Tyrion is only arguing that the two of them shouldn't fight because they're young. Mm-hmm. But then he immediately turns around and says, and Eustace, you killed your man. Yeah. And, like, praises him for having come of age and slaughtering another human being. I mean, Tyrion is also, like, in character, Tyrion is working with all of these legends that he has of, like, basically child soldiers of, like, how Caspian won this great battle and, like, when he was, like, 14 or whatever, how, like, the original four kings and queens of Narnia came in where, like, nine Edmund and Lucy 12, were, yeah. like, 9 to 12 and, like, they basically freed the country from oppression like he has all these this historical precedent to say oh yeah children can can, fight children can fight and then he's sitting there going no you're young you shouldn't fight Uh uh-huh and so yeah i was i was 
I was so frustrated because he says it, and I'm like, good, he's not he's not just saying women can't fight. Cool. Hmm. But then also he's immediately saying, Eustace, you killed your man. <laughs> and he's also coming from this context where he should be expecting these kids to fight. Uh-huh. 100% should be expecting these kids to fight because they are sent by Aslan from the other world to save Narnia. And every one of them has fought up to this point to do that. Yeah. And so, like, 100%, if he is sitting here going, these are the humans sent by Aslan from Earth, he should be expecting them to fight. Uh-huh. He shouldn't be trying to keep them from a fight. He should be encouraging them to fight because this is what his legends say they do. Yep. They come in and they and they wreck stuff and they make it happen and they take care of things. Like... I mean, that's just children in general. They yes, come in and they, they wreck stuff. come in and wreck stuff. <laughs> but, like... But we have this this complete nonsensical argument f- coming from the character it shouldn't be coming from. Uh-huh. That because they're young, they shouldn't fight. Anyway, so there you go. There was my, my angry rant about the complete nonsense that comes out of Tyrion's mouth in this, th- this chapter. Where he's like, yep, you killed your man. And also, you shouldn't fight because you're young. But also, you were sent by Aslan from the other world. Just like the great kings and queens of old who ran all of these military conflicts. Yeah. And who was he to deny the will of Aslan? I yeah. mean, he... And he even goes back and references specifically uh, something like that had happened in the time of King Miraz because they were talking about running away to the Western Waste, where, you're, where your character at the intro <laughs> comes from. Uh-huh. Um... And, and coming back to take over Narnia. And he says something like that happened in the time of King Mraz with Caspian and Peter and Lucy and Susan and Edmund. <laughs> like, yeah. So, I don't know. I mean, Tyrion's just this very complex character. And, like, his, his views aren't black and white. He's got a lot of shades of gray in there. Um, anyway, so while Jill and Eustace are having this very depressing conversation about what happens if they die, the others are more cheerful, and they're talking about, like, what's logistically what's actually going to happen here. Um, and Poggin's really They're conf- not more cheerful. Poggin's the only one who's oh. remotely close to cheerful this whole time. Yeah. Poggin was really quite cheerful about yeah. the night's work they had to do. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he was he's confident that the boar and the bear, singular, there's one boar, there's one bear. Yep. Where are all the other animals in Narnia? Like it seems like lots of squirrels, but one boar and one bear and it, one ginger cat. It, it seems like this whole like conspiracy is like, hey, there's five, there's five tel or not telmarines, thirty telmarines. Yeah, not telmarines. Um, there's 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 thirty calamines. yes. There's like thirty to calamines. There's like maybe a hundred various animals. It's like the the entire population of this work camp is very small and compared to the rest of the country. Yeah. Like this this is a very small little microcosm of, of what's going on. So where are all the other dwarves or where are all the other talking beasts? Like what's going on in the rest of Narnia? It does seem that way a little bit, yeah. Where where are all the centaurs? Because like yeah. we've we've killed one of them. Yeah. Um anyway, he's confident that the singular boar and bear are gonna join and all the dogs, apparently lots of dogs though. Yeah. All the dogs are going to come over. Uh, and he couldn't believe that all the other dwarfs would stick to Griffel, yeah. who I guess we named him earlier. Yeah, Griffel the... was the lead of yeah. the of the band that Poggin abandoned. Yeah, and so he's like, oh, we'll, ha- we'll probably have the dwarves, and, like, we're going to get all these people on our side. And, like, you know, worst case scenario, we might, we're probably still going to have a sizable force with us. Um, 
but yeah, Poggin's very optimistic. Yeah. Um, and you he's know, like, having, we'll get all these Narnians to fight against these Calormines. Yeah. yeah. Having said that, he's just like, why don't we gather? Why do we have to fight at all? Why don't we just gather our who is with us? We wander off to the Western Waste. We hide out there like outlaws for how many, you know, who knows how long. Like other Narnians are going to come in and join us when they hear about our cause. And we're yeah. going to get together an army and then we'll march on Narnia yeah. and take the whole country back. Yeah. We'll rise up. Yeah. Then we're going to create a whole underground uh, resistance movement. Yeah. There's also discussion when they talk about where where it is that Eustace and Jill should go. And they're told to go to Arkenland briefly. And they're like, Arkenland's going to fall immediately if Narnia falls. Because it'll be surrounded north and south by Calarmine. Yeah. So. I mean, also, like, Corrin's dead. And, like, if he was still around, like, no way they could ever take Arkenland. <laughs> he would just punch out the entire army maybe that's um, the bear <laughs> are bears long livers I don't, I don't know all right continue um anyway so they talk about plans like that uh but then they stop their conversation as they get near stable hill and they go out to sneak in um and i really like this line that i wanted to point out uh from the moment at which they first saw the hill to the moment at which they all arrived at the back of the stable, it took them over two hours. It's the sort of thing one couldn't possibly describe properly unless one wrote pages and pages about it. Yep. And I'm always a fan when an author takes the time to be like, I could write about this, but it's going to take a lot of space here and I'm not going to do it. So just imagine <laughs> the most complicated description you can of sneaking up to the hill, uh-huh. d- ducking from tree to tree and... And I fully imagine, like, Tolkien sat down and read that line and was just like, this freaking guy. Yeah, I could, I could see. I feel, I do feel a little bit like this is a direct, like, riff on, like, nah, you know, I know people who have written books that are, like, three chapters of just getting up the side of a hill. Yep. yep. I'm not going to do that to you. <laughs> just, it would take me a while. Yeah, that, that could be a subtle dig at Tolkien. Um... Anyway, the journey from each bit of cover to the next was a separate adventure, and, like, this is a whole thing where they had to sneak in, etc., etc. Yeah, you know, like crossing Mirkwood. Yeah. And then they just, uh, they settled in, they, and then they waited. And they took a little nap, they rested, they had to wait for nightfall to come, and then they, uh, Jewel and the King share a moment where they're just like, well, we're both going to probably die, but it's been an honor serving with you, etc., cetera, et If there's cetera. anything I've ever done to offend you, please forgive me. Oh, good king, I wish you had done me wrong so I could forgive you. Yeah, it's all very melodramatic. Like, it's... it's. I mean, I don't want to say melodramatic. Like, these are a bunch of, of characters who are fairly confident they might be walking right into their deaths. So, yeah. like, they're allowed to be emotional, I suppose. Yes, um. they, they can and should be emotional. I just feel like... Lewis decided to, like, write so much about, like, I don't know. It just just seemed a little bit of, like, I'm not going to write about them avoiding capture and all the intrigue. I'm going to focus on the emotional impact of this. And I I think that that's a decision. Like, that is a decision he made. There you go. Boom. A choice. Cool. Um, and they were just like, whether well, it's a good choice or not, it's up to uh, the given readers. Yeah. Uh, and they're like, oh, no, we don't have any regrets. And then everybody's going to wake up. Um, and they start observing, uh, you know, the bonfire theater show that's taking place. Yes. And this whole thing starts. 
uh, and they see it all put on uh, up close, really, for the first time, and they're hiding kind of behind the stable as this is happening on the hill, close enough that if anybody just kind of glanced in their direction, they'd probably get seen, and they were hoping just to not be the most interesting thing happening at the time. Yep, and they weren't, <laughs> fortunately. <clears throat> yeah. Um, so, like, the Tarkins come up, um, the ape comes out holding the Tarkin's hand, uh, where he comes out muttering, not so fast, don't go so fast, I'm not at all well. Like, the ape isn't doing well, and the ape is just becoming These a midnight meetings are giving me headaches, which we have already, uh, indicated that he's turned to drink, so he's probably just hung over, yeah. but he's like, these midnight, I, apes aren't meant to be up this late, we're not like bats and rats. Yeah. Or the, like, the ape is just this drunken figure who's being used now. And I wanted to pause there and re-examine the character of the ape now. Because going into it at the beginning... He was very mastermindy. Yeah, we were almost looking at the ape as kind of an Antichrist figure. But that's not really the case anymore because he's just a puppet and being used. Mm-hmm. So like Ashlan is the Antichrist figure here. Yeah. So, like, we go back to who is the ape really? Yeah. Like, who is the, the fat, drunken, lazy... You know, he's the beast caricature or something being used. like that. Yeah, it's like is this is this still like the mainstream clergy? Like, is the ape the pope? I like, don't know. <laughs> like, I mean, because there's very much this this storyline that's happening for what's the what's the ape's name? Um, um, shift. Shift. So shift starts out as this kind of selfish character who is using people and abusing people, specifically Puzzle, in order to get what he wants and claiming to be very wise and all of these things. Uh And Puzzle trusts him fully and is taken advantage of and abused by him because of um, his willingness to believe that Shift, you know, Puzzle's willingness to believe that Shift is, like, more intelligent and more gifted. Uh And then um, Shift has this whole plan entirely for selfish gain he wants what he wants and he's going to get it by pretending that something he doesn't believe in aslan is uh making decisions and that he is basically the voice of aslan yeah and i feel like at no point has shift ever believed in aslan like i feel like he just and i feel like at no point did shift think that this would hurt anyone uh like I, obviously, he knew it would hurt people, uh-huh. and obviously, he doesn't care. But, like, he didn't think that it would undermine anything he cares about. Yeah. I mean, and what he wants is very small in scope. Like, originally, he's just like, you know what? I want bananas uh, yeah. and oranges. Yeah. Uh, and, and now I want some drink, and now I want, you know, yeah. nuts. Yeah. Where, you know, in this allegory, it could very well be... Uh, the the unnamed person in our reality being like, oh, I just want money. I'm doing this to get rich. I want things. Yeah. And not seeing the greater spiritual reality of how somebody else could use this situation to, you know, affect John a much deeper change. Yeah. Um. So there you go. Um. Point is, shift's getting used here. Yeah, uh, and and then shift getting what he wanted meant making deals with Calarmine because they're the ones who have some of the products he wants. Uh-huh. And that involved selling and harming others. Yeah. And cutting down the trees and, and selling dwarves into slavery and things like that. Uh-huh. And 100%, he just doesn't care because it gets him what he wants. 
And then the Tarkin begins to take over with the ginger cat and they have this whole plan in order to continue, like, basically to shut down Shift and whatever it is that he wants. Yeah. I mean, I feel like there's there's some influence of the name there where Shift is literally just representing the shift of power. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I don't know. Like, how... How the, like, I I think it's just a bunch of people in power, you know, like, taking that power and using it for what they think is their own benefit, but not knowing that they are being used by a greater power. Yeah. So, and and like they said, like, maybe they don't even see that Tash is there. Because obviously the Tarkin doesn't believe in Tash, neither does the Ginger Cat. Mm -hmm. So. But theoretically is in in the stable. We'll get there. Um, so, then the, the ginger cat comes out, and then the Tarkan is whispering the cat, being like, oh, are you ready to play your part? Um, Lewis, So they have this whole plan that yeah. they've put out. Lewis spells meow in a really weird way. Yeah! <laughs> it is a little bit odd. Like, the traditional meow spelling is M-E-O-W. Yeah. Uh, here he says M-I-A-O-W. Maybe that's okay. the British spelling. Maybe that's for. the British. <laughs> you don't know. Yeah. In Japan, it's meow. Yeah. Cats meow. They don't meow. I know. In Spanish, chickens kikiriki instead of (laughs) cockadoodle-doo. And by chickens, I mean roosters. But what does the fox say? (laughs) What does the fox say? (laughs) Hey, guys, remember this? Remember this? Remember when this was a thing? I do. Oh, man. Um, Let's say it's dating our podcast, but we're making a reference to something that was like seven years ago. Yeah. <laughs> yep. That was back when I uh, worked at Beacon. Future listeners of this podcast, if you're listening to this in like the 2030s, go back and... <laughs> listen to... Uh, yeah, listen to... What does the fox say? Yeah. If you're listening to this in the 100th anniversary of the Narnia series, <laughs> find the old video of what does the fox say and be confused. This yep. was our culture. Yes, this was <laughs> our culture. <laughs> um, anyway, so they put on this whole thing that's very much like theater, as I included in my uh, summary. Um, yes, and this is this is specifically, like, it's, it's a very much, in, I think, intentional word choice there that this area looks like a theater. Uh-huh. And, like... They and it's kind of described that them hiding behind the stable are backstage and they can look out and see the firelight reflecting in the eyes of the audience. Uh-huh. And like, there's this very much descriptive of theater, very much visually a theater, and very much are you ready to play your part? That line given to the cat, like, yeah, that given to, to the ginger cat is very specific to a theatrical presence. So it's very much this running metaphor that's put forward in this chapter of this whole thing being a performance and this whole thing being very much put on and and orchestrated and directed by what we think for a moment might be the Tarkin and the Ginger Cat, but then we realize that they're on the stage and the director is hiding inside the shed probably, like, and is probably Tash. Yeah. Whether or not they know it. So, anywho, um, I wish I was more familiar with, and I've said this many, many times in this podcast, I really wish I was more familiar with the Protestant church environment of England in the time frame this is set in. 
Yeah. Because reading this as a modern audience, it seems to me that, like, Lewis is really making a dig here at, like, the theatrics of modern, like, evangelical churches and being like, this whole thing is set up as theater. Well, and yeah, and that's like, how you can interpret it very yeah. directly with your personal experience. Yeah. But, but I, I don't know if this was even a thing in yeah. 1950s England Yeah, that he'd be talking about. So I, I really wish I was more familiar. I, I don't know how to research this particular issue because that's a very niche topic. Yeah, I, I mean, you would to... have to look into, like, specifically church history stuff. Yeah. Um, but anyway. Post, post-war church history in England. If anybody listening is an expert in this very, very specific field, please <laughs> inform us. Yes. Um, but yeah. as a modern audience. Or if you just have more patience for research. Yeah. But, <laughs> but I can definitely see how that would be a, you know, kind of a hot take on mega churches in America and how they're set up. Oh yeah. Because it's uh but it's it's very pressing and it's very relevant to the church today in that sense. Anyway, so they continue um and they reveal and then once the beasts have gathered, the ape is just like at this very moment when the terrible one himself is among us. Mm-hmm. So the ape is aware in some level, or at least they're telling them, that Tash is here. Well, they have they have changed their their tune, and they have said he's not a tame lion. Now they are specifically referring to him as an instrument of fear, and they've kind of shifted their tone about Aslan. Like, and and the ape says Aslan and gets corrected to call him Tashlan. Yeah, it's the the syncretism that we're implying here. Yes, um, absolutely, so much syncretism. <laughs> which I was trying to find a parallel to that that lewis might be talking about but that one i am i'm i'm not really sure if that's a thing that for me it's the same thing that i was talking about before like that that comes into my mind is the idea of people saying muslim god allah is is the same as the as the christian god is the same as the jewish god like people saying you know like that argument is the first one that comes to mind for me. Yeah. But I don't know what other, like, what was the hot button issue of syncretism at that point in history? Like, yeah. are we keeping the very on the nose metaphor of, like, these are, uh, you know, these are Arabs? And I mean, are- and that's very much how it has been played out throughout the series. It's been uh-huh. very heavily, heavy handed, being like, everyone from Calarmine is representative of someone in a very distinct. Arabic context. Yeah. Anyway, um, so, and he's just like, oh, or man. Moorish, or Moorish. Yeah, thanks. Anyway, so he's just like, when the terrible in himself is here in the stable behind me, somebody's done the unthinkable, and they've gone and dressed up a donkey like Aslan and are parading him around the countryside and saying that, you know, this is, this is, you know, Aslan himself, Aslan, and yeah. like, uh, basically, is revealing the part of the truth of what they were doing in such a way as to frame Tyrion and whoever else is with Puzzle. Yeah. So they have now made it impossible for them to come forward and reveal the truth at all. Yes. And we end the chapter with that becoming forward and them realizing just how screwed they are. Yeah. Because they're because... only the only card they have left in their hand is now useless. Yeah. So, what do they do? They have no allies, they have no army, they don't have the truth to reveal. And by mixing a little truth with it, they had made their lie far stronger. Yeah. 
And I feel and like all of the people, all of the beasts present, are up in arms and rage and anger about this. Yeah, and I feel like this this is like kind of probably the bleakest situation that anybody's been in in Narnia, as far as like the characters we followed. Yeah, it's like it's they they don't have a way out. They don't have any hope here. Yeah. Besides, like it's, besides Edmund in the castle of the White Witch, like there hasn't really been a, a moment this bleak in any character from Earth's experience in Narnia. Yeah. Yeah. I mean the the only real the only real thing we have waiting in the wings here, especially as like myself who is not aware of the plot of the rest of the book, the only thing I can think of is we still have the wild card of, you know peter and edmund and whoever back on earth who are trying to find the rings and they are probably going to come back over at some point okay. but yeah other than that we still have lots of beasts in narnia that are unaccounted for yeah true so who knows who knows who's going to come and save the day maybe aslan actually shows up um <laughs> crazy thought that would be cool. um so yeah with all of that um we have a lot of characters facing mortality in this chapter. That's yeah. a very heavy theme. And then we have this very intense metaphor of, like, the theater being presented here for... And how taken in all of the Narnians are by it. Uh-huh. But also just, like, yeah, super bleak. Yeah. Oh. It's a pressing chapter. Um, and it's very short. Yep. Cool. Anything we didn't cover? I think we, we talked pretty exhaustively about this one, and we can yeah, I move think we on. Yeah, we can move on. All right. What do we do next, Kristen? Uh, do we do our rewrites next? We do, okay. in fact. And I do mine first? You do. I know it's been a while. It but has since been you a read while. Your, uh, since I read my summary first, you would do your rewrite. All right. Um, so what we do while we are reading the chapter, we take five sentences out and write a summary with them. We also take five sentences out of the chapter and try to tell a new story. What fun. Yes. It's a little bit of a creative exercise for us, but it also can give us an insight into kind of some of the themes and some of the different points that we find in the chapter that are a little more intense or, you know. I'll tell you right now, mine didn't. (laughs) Yours didn't? (laughs) Yours didn't what? Uh, Give insight into anything. Okay. Well, go ahead. Mine, mine. I really wrote more of a half of a conversation than a story because okay. I used all dialogue, and um, it's more about kind of the impression of the tone uh-huh. rather than anything else. So I'll go ahead and read my uh, rewrite. Cool. Go for it. Don't talk about that, for goodness' sake," said Jill. Say the words that wiser heads have put into thy mouth. The bonfire had not the bonfire had not been lit for long and was just beginning to blaze up. We shouldn't be there. Why do you say that? Okay, just a little scene by a bonfire. Yeah. Like a oh. okay. could, No. It could be interpreted in many different ways. Yeah. No, okay. it's for me. It was a lot more ominous and foreboding, not not just a scene by a bonfire. Okay, but whatever. It's a really intense scene with some mischievousness, mischievousness. Yeah, however you say that word. Anyway, I gotcha. The you so you're going with a more of the darker tone. Yeah. Okay, I just made mine kind of silly. Okay. So here's my rewrite. These midnight meetings are getting too much for me. But he didn't say so. No one, 
Not even the king himself, except in some great need, would dream of riding on a unicorn. I'm feeling I'm going to be sick. Kiss me, Jewel, he said. So confused. <laughs> okay. Um, this is a little, little tryst meeting between... Uh, okay. Okay. A unicorn and somebody else. Okay. We were having a little okay. love affair. Okay. Anyway. You do you. (laughs) Cool. I thought it was fun. All right, should we move on to our last segment here? Uh, Yeah, sure thing. We're going to get sued. Um, Anyway. So this is our uh, last segment. The ultimate conflict? I think so. Okay. I keep forgetting what Kristen calls it and what the name of the segment actually is. But Maybe you should one, write it down at the top of the page gosh, that you I, look at every time we do this I really should, segment. since I've got like seven more of these to do. Anyway, so in this one, I thought it would be fun for the final book to have a knockdown dragout fight between a bunch of random mashups of characters throughout the entire series and see who would actually win in the last battle. Haha. Uh, between a bunch of people that we've met before. And so we've been doing random matchups uh, of a cast of characters in a random place, and we talk about who would win in a fight uh, in a little bracket-style competition. This is our last new matchup. Yes. So we have our last two entrants into the contest, and from here on out it is all rematches from previous victors. So without further ado, Kristen, I would like a random number between 1 and 24. Alrighty, I've got 17, which we've already done. I've got 8, which we've already done. I've got 3. Have we done that one yet? Uh, We have not. Alright, 3. 3. And? 3. And? 20. Nope. Done. We've done 20? Yep. Oh, the Duffers. 19. Weird, 9 and 19, you said? <laughs> That's crazy. Um, it was 9 and 19, right? You can say whatever you want. Okay. Um, because there's a, there's several entrants here that we're not going to use in the Ultimate Conflict, uh, and one of them is going to be just an absolute shame if we don't. So we're not going to say 3 is our... Uh, is our actual role because that was uncle andrew and i don't want him going forward you don't want him in here uh i don't want him in here so what we actually have is glenn storm the centaur versus tumnus the fawn all right um i was you're gonna be so sad if tumnus gets knocked out in this one yeah um but tumnus had to at least come into the fight you really Um, wanted him he was number nine yep um, so this, since this is our last matchup, I'll just read off everybody else that we're not including. All right. Um, so this is Tumnus, which is Glenn Storm. We're not going to have Uncle, Uncle Andrew. Andrew, Diggory, Peter, Susan, all out. Uh, Caspian is out. Reap it cheap. Bummer. You know, the one who would actually really, really want to be in this matchup. Yeah. The only one who'd want to fight Reap it cheap is not going to make it. Uh, Jill Pole and Prince Rillian all are out. All right. So, Tumnus versus Glenstorm. Kristen, give us an, another random number between 1 and 10. All right. 9. All right. We're in giant country. All right. <sighs> cool. 
So we're up in the we're up in the frigid north of giant. Who country. won in the last one? Uh, who was our last? Marsh Wiggles and the Beaver. Uh, yeah, Puddle Glum had to move on. So as in our Puddle Glum fight, um, we are only we are limiting this to abilities, uh, items, uh, combat prowess that we have specifically seen within the books, and not using our own headcanon. So. So Tumnus is going to be defeated by Glenstorm <laughs> because Glenstorm is a centaur who can read the stars. He is. Tumnus is also very clever, though. As we have established, it is it is basically canon. He's going to feed Glenstorm toast until he gets fat. That like, what um, what what prowess does he have in the text? Um, t- Not just in our head canon, because you're the one crippling yourself on this. <laughs> Uh, Tumnus is very clever. Um, He's and, so clever that he got in with the White Witch. Uh, he did. Uh, he he was recruited because she was just like, you know what? I could try to you take... You know who else she recruited? Trees. <laughs> because she was just like, you know what? I could try to take him out. I don't know if I'd succeed. I could try to take Tumnus out of the equation. But wouldn't I be so much more powerful if I had him as an ally? Um... She she had to come and, and sway Tumnus over to her side. We're taking her headcanon yeah. out of account and only doing what's in the text. I would say... Just say Tumnus won and go... You, it, already, yeah. you already faked the role and, 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 so that okay. he could be in the, the fight. The entire point of this is a stupid conversation, though. So yeah. we're in giant country. It's cold up there. It's a frigid north. Like, it's barren. Yes. This is the kind of environment that Tumnus cut his teeth in yes. as, like, a spy for the witch. He's, yeah. like, very at home in this environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, Glen Storm, I don't know. Uh, we know centaurs live a long time. He was but probably around when Glen the White Storm, Witch was. yeah, um, Glen Storm was definitely young at that point. If he, if anything, yeah, he might have been born. He might not have. We don't know because he doesn't show off. We don't know a lot. how long of a life, long liver he is. Yeah, how how long is Prince Caspian after? Uh, like a thousand years or yeah. something. So I don't know if they live that long. So he might not have been around. Um, but. Glenstorm, uh, obviously, centaur, very wise, very physically powerful. They live a long time. Uh, they're both brilliant tacticians. The, I think this is another one that comes down to basically a war of attrition because, like, if there's any planning at all in this, like, God help everybody within a 100-mile radius because, like, they're, they're going to turn the entire country into a battlefield. Um, they're... <laughs> Uh, Glenstorm is obviously going to look at portents from the stars and get, like, maybe some prophecy going uh, to be able to tell the future and maybe see what Tumnus is going to yeah, do. Yeah, Tumnus fu- is going to read a book called Is Man a Myth? <laughs> and then bake a uh, cake. Tumnus, obviously a, a scholar, um, <laughs> very well-read and well-educated as well. Just play with me in this space really quick, okay? You're, 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 this is your, your game. You yeah. play your game. And you're supposed to yes and me. Okay. <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, in terms of combat, like, we don't really in the books specifically see either of them do anything. Correct me if I'm wrong. We don't really see Glenn Storm Yes, fight. and? We do in the movie, I think. Yes. Glenstorm is definitely in part of the in the battle uh, in the movies, which are canon. So we have to take those into account. Um, <laughs> yes, and 
Tumnus, I've still never watched the movie. Uh, you, I have. You watched the movie. Yes, have watched the movie. Of you one didn't watch the, the Prince Caspian movie, did we? Yeah, yeah, that was one of my one of the ones. Oh, we watched. haven't watched the Voyage of the Dawn Treader movie yet. Correct. Okay. Um. So yeah. Oh, did we? I don't know. I don't know. We've watched. I, it's just, we've been doing this project for so long. Um. <laughs> we did because. The Prince Caspian movie is the one where, like, Edmund's up in the tower with his flashlight. Mm-hmm. Remember? Like, they, they went and, and did the whole battle that didn't exist in the books. Yes. Um, gosh. Tumnus is also very charming. Uh, and I think uh, under a certain circumstance, he could lure Glenn Storm into a false sense of security. Yeah, he could make him go dance in the woods with him. Yeah. Then what? Have a have a little fun party, maybe eat some poison toast. I don't know. I think Tumnus really has the guile here to pull one over on Glenn Storm. Just tell everybody that Tumnus won. <laughs> <laughs> but here's the thing. If I do that and I BS the fight and just say, oh yeah, Tumnus is great and he wins, I can just do that with the rest of it and we have the very boring result of Tumnus is the ultimate champion, which everybody's going to see coming. Uh-huh. So we can't do that. So, in so terms then of... don't ask me to yes and you <laughs> and listen to my arguments. I am I'm listening. You're I'm, not. You I'm... want me to yes and you so that he can continue, but you also don't want it to be a pushover fight. I'm trying to climb up the sheer granite cliff face that is your argument here. That I'm just desperately trying to find purchase okay. against it. Okay. Uh, because I know you have a really strong argument that, yes, Glenn Storm is going to be the better martial combatant here. Yes. And in previous matchups here, we have said that forethought and time to plan isn't really a thing because I brought this argument up before. Yeah, with the beavers and everything. Yeah. So that being said, as much as it pains me, I do feel like we have to give it to Glenn Storm. Okay. So then it was Uncle Andrew and Glenn Storm killed him. Cool. Yep. <laughs> I just didn't want Tumnus to get left out. But yeah, if we're actually doing the real matchup, yeah, Uncle Andrew versus Glenn Storm is absolutely zero contest. Yeah. And we would that wouldn't have been nearly as fun of a discussion. <laughs> yeah. So But Tumnus still got defeated because your head cannon is not cannon. Yeah, I know. Steve's gonna be outraged. <laughs> Um, also the fact that Lazar Lane isn't included in this, uh... Yeah, you didn't even, you didn't even <laughs> put her on the list. She didn't even have a chance to get disincluded. because yeah, I only had 24, like, I, I already had too many, like, there was a number yes, of characters... and you characters decided to include Uncle Andrew. Yeah, because I wanted to include... Instead of Lazar Lane? Because I wanted to include all of the main named characters from all the books. Fine. You got Erebus in, right? Yes. Okay. Erebus was there. Yeah, she failed against Corrin. Yeah. <laughs> as is... On the Dawn Shredder. As is almost everybody. Um, cool. Glenstorm moves on. Uh, who's who's our matchup going to be next time? Our next time matchup will be Lucy versus Shasta Prince Kor. Ooh, that's going to be an interesting one. I feel like that's a very even matchup. So we're going we're gonna to see where that goes. Cool. That's our done segment. Kristen, would you like to close this out? Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us today as we discussed Chapter 9 of The Last Battle. Join us next week as we discuss Chapter 10, Who Will Go Into the Stable? Question mark. Yep. 
If you want to interact with us in the meantime, you can do that at Chronically Podcast on Facebook and Instagram, at Chronically Pod on Twitter, or you can email us your fan art of Tumnus being defeated by Glenstorm in the giant country in the north <laughs> to <laughs> chronicallypodcast at gmail.com. That art would just be too powerful. It would just be, I don't know. I don't know if regular mortals could look upon that and stay sane. Um <laughs> all righty you can also uh find us on patreon at patreon.com slash chronically podcast where you can uh help us pay our monthly hosting fees and get nothing at all in return except for the smug superiority you can feel over other humans we'll give you a shout out on the show yes we will 100 (laughs) percent. and until next time until next time. And until next time, if you're ever in a battle with a centaur, just use a bow and arrow. And unless you have a very great need, don't ever ride on a unicorn. Ever. Yeah. I feel like mine was a little dark, and I probably shouldn't have made a joke about the about the centaur dying from the tel- <laughs> from the calamine arrow. Um, it's, it's okay. It's okay. Should should be. It's out there. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Bye. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) We have said. Sorry. My foot's stuck on the trash can. But the candle looks weird. sustenance dry january i don't know what you're talking about (laughs) there in the stable just behind me one wicked beast has chosen to do what you'd think no one would have done to eat think no one would dare to do even if we're i'm gonna restart that sentence yeah i know Yeah, because of you. What was I doing? I don't know. I'm just going to blame you anyway. All right. Finding out the terrible news that... What? Why are you taking my candies? I'm stacking them on this side of the microphone so that I can move my book so that I don't this have to This is the loud deal. noises that come through in the podcast when you're moving things around. No, this is... <laughs> that and the knocking sounds I'm... and the vibrations do you listen to the podcast <laughs> do these loud sounds bother you in the podcast these are growing on me i didn't used to like these very much you don't like reese's peanut butter cups <laughs>